Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent. I have Brother Andrew Warwick on with me today to discuss some important issues. Um, feel free to check out our blog. I'll plug the blog real quick, theparticularbaptist.net. We don't update that as often as we'd like, but there's plenty there to keep you busy if you want to do some reading, theparticularbaptist.net. Also, check out the Society for Reformed Podcasters, where we are hosted or one of the places that we're hosted. There's other podcasts there as well. And check out our Patreon um, if you would like to support us. We actually just got a new patron this past week, David Pittman. Uh, we want to thank him for his support um, and for our other supporters as well, Stephen and the Aramus, who have graciously uh, given us um, some things to support us. So we, we really appreciate that. Um, also want to plug our new book real quick. Um, we just released our new book, The Infinite for Little Minds, The Doctrine of God for Children, this past week on Amazon. Um, uh, we've been posting it on social media. You can find it on our Twitter, Facebook, and our Instagram pages. Um, so a, a good way uh, we think that parents can introduce the doctrine of God to children and, and help with family devotion. So pick up your copy today. You can find it on Amazon, The Infinite for Little Minds. Um, so with that, we'll go ahead and dive right in, and, and I'll hand it over to Andrew to introduce our topic. All right. Thanks, Dan. Um, so yeah, we're going to be discussing uh, Joel Webman's uh, book and just general ideas that, that he spreads not only in the book, but in the interviews he's done and elsewhere uh, called uh, Fight by Flight, uh, Why Leaving Godless Places is Loving Godless Places. And I need to preface this uh, a little bit. Yeah, thank you, Dan. You got a much better camera than I do. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, no doubt about that. Uh, but in, in any case, I, I did need to preface this episode that uh, part of my notes, at least, uh, was going to be involved contrasting two clips, uh, one on the A.D. Robles show and then one uh, clip from his sermon, uh, Should Christians Flee Blue States? And 20 minutes before I came on, uh, it appears that that second video, uh, Should Christians Leave Blue States, has been made private. So it's not publicly available anymore. So I don't know if he's uh, retracting that somewhat. Uh, he wants to refine his language or whatever. Uh, but we're going to have to make some on-the-fly kind of adjustments as we go through this book. Because I'm not going to criticize him for something he's pulled down now. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I apologize if the episode's a little bit more haphazard than usual. Uh, and if I start to read a section of my notes and I'm like well i can't i'm acting like you've seen the clip but i don't have the clip to show you today so just apologies in advance but anyways to get back to uh, our subject here uh so probably a lot of you are familiar with this uh topic at this point and some of you might even be think we're kind of beating a dead horse by discussing it uh because you know there are tons of videos tweets blog posts out there so why do we need another response to joel webin well I, for starters, definitely a lot of responses out there are, are very good, and I don't want to downplay that. But I do think there are a number of voices out there that haven't really read the book, or they're just commenting on clips or general impressions that they've gotten from others, maybe secondhand, about what the book teaches. And so hopefully having read the book, that will enable us to give a more thorough take than some of the ones out there. And I, I think that's especially important because, as we'll see, there, there seems to be two conflicting postures or spirits behind it about whether he's really encouraging you to leave or whether he's just defending people who say that you need to stay um so or, or rather he's defending the people who want to leave in the face of people who are trying to make them stay um 
and because of that, I think that's led to some confusion about it. Um, if you've only been exposed to one side of it and haven't been exposed to the other, you're not going to have a, a fully balanced view of everything that he said. Uh, and that kind of internal tension there does significantly affect how it, it comes across uh, and affects whether he's overstepping his rightful jurisdiction or not in what he says. But besides the difference in presentation, there's there's another aspect that we'll kind of have to work through and untangle because there are two basic sets of arguments that he's using that are kind of rolled up in a, a ball as, as, as one to make the full case. Uh, one of them is based on biblical principles that all people should consider when it comes to their moving decisions. Uh, but the other one is, is more rooted in his uh, post-millennial theonomy perspective, which we certainly don't share. And the argument itself is, uh, in my estimation, completely unbiblical. There's not anything like it in the New Testament scriptures where uh, any of the apostles or Christ uh, encourage people to move or to stay based on that kind of reasoning. So uh, we need to kind of address both of those and untangle it uh, from untangle those arguments from one another. Uh, but uh, despite all that, uh, it, it's it's not as simple as rejecting everything he says either. Because there are some things that are indeed good for a believer to consider and parts that are even a helpful corrective to another unbiblical mindset that's out there. So our hope is to provide a, a balanced take on the major things that, that have been said and to help others navigate the issue better. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good introduction, Andrew. We're, we want to be fair to Joel. You know, even though we disagree with Joel, we, we, we don't want to misrepresent him. And going to the sources, so to speak, like this is helpful because we can work from the set in stone writings that and teachings that he has put out there. We're not basing this off of hearsay or anything like that. This is what he said coming straight from what he claims his view is. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to, you know, to balance that out well. And we do see some good things that that Joel has said, and, and we want to point those out um, that we think are important. Um, and, and I think Andrew will get into that in a second, but there are some good things that he says and that I think are helpful. We just think he misapplies, uh, some of those principles. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And to, to start off on that note too, for, for something positive about the book, uh, one thing that I do appreciate a lot about it is that it, it pushes against this idea that everyone's called to be a pastor or a missionary and to leave everything they have behind and go out in the jungles and to preach the gospel. That's not the ordinary call of the Christian by any stretch of the imagination in the New Testament. And, and not even the ordinary call for the pastor, I would say. Uh, Joel pushes back against the notion that it's good and permissible to abandon every other responsibility in our lives, whether it's our responsibility to be good parents, good spouses, good employees, uh, in order to run off to seek destruction and martyrdom that God's providence has not even bound us to. And so I appreciate that because that mindset of... Uh, fleeing your responsibilities is, is not biblical, and it needs to be pushed against. Uh, you never see Paul or any of the apostles encouraging Christians in the churches they plant to do anything like that. The instruction, rather, of Paul for the average Christian is to, uh, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Now, there are some people accompanied him on his missionary journeys, but that was not the average duty of the Christian. It was to abide in the same calling wherein they were called. And again, even the pastors in the New Testament appear to mostly be men who were who were local to the area that they're they're shepherding. They're raised up from their city or town. 
uh, like we see when Titus is is appointing uh, elders in every city. It, that that seems to be the implication, at least. Uh, and they're called to do nothing else but shepherd that local flock that God has given them. So uh, it's an important principle that grace doesn't destroy nature. It perfects it and it restores it. Grace enables a man to better fulfill the responsibilities that's been given to him, enabling him to be a better father, a better husband, a better son, a better citizen, and a better worker. So our call to self-denial isn't to not be a good father, son, husband, etc., but uh, to deny our wickedness and selfishness that prevent us from fulfilling our responsibilities to God and man. And I like to point out there's nothing self-denying about trying to appear as sacrificial as possible. I need to go to the most desolate place, the, the most hard place as possible at the expense of the things that God has called you to. Uh, that's nothing more than, I, I would say, a, a modern incarnation of the Corbin principle, which A.D. Robles also brought up in his interview with Joel, rightfully. Uh, in the Corbin principle is that principles where the Pharisees ignore their duty to their mother and father by saying, whatever you could have been benefited by, it's a gift. It's a gift to God. It's a gift to the temple. And then they leave their parents desolate. So I definitely appreciate that aspect of it. Uh, the part where there starts to be an issue, though, is uh, when we uh, move from encouraging Christians to take biblical principles seriously to actually start saying, OK, here's what it's going to look like in practice to you if it's not uh, an area that God's given us authority to speak to. Um, sometimes the Bible gives us clear, practical examples of what uh, certain things look like. Uh, and, but other times it, it leaves it up to our own consciences to be convinced in our own minds about where the line is between faithfulness and faithlessness and to be content not to judge another man's servant if his conscience leads him elsewhere. Yeah, it, that's very important that we make that contrast. And, and going back to you know the positives of so, some of the principles that Joel is using here. Um, you know, he goes to the principle found in First Timothy five eight that one is to provide for their family and not just run off in into ministry. And I, I think, unfortunately, there is sometimes a tendency to think that ministry is is like the highest calling, and therefore everything else is inferior to that, which we would disagree with. There is definitely something worthy of double honor of being a, a minister of God. Paul says that, but he would never pit them against each other as if one is more important than the other in uh, the ultimate sense of the term as if you know a father is somehow inferior to a pastor because of the position that uh, they find themselves in they're both called of god in different ways and they're to uh, serve god faithfully in those places um, i do want to look at a section this is from page 25 of joel's book um, he says Quote, it is true that God calls some men to stand up in the pulpit as pastors, but not before these men learn how to stand up for their own wives and children as husbands and fathers. Yeah. Biblical manhood in this country has been dying a slow and painful death for decades. End quote. That's from page 25. And I think that provides some very helpful guidance in terms of what he's trying to present to some extent in his arguments that, you know, we're, we're to provide for our families were to to not neglect those practical things that God has called uh, men to do in particular. Um, so I, I think he's on the right track uh, as we're as we're looking at these things. And we wouldn't you know, there, there are times where we do need to lay aside our families to serve Christ. Jesus does talk about that, um, like Luke 14, 26. Uh, Jesus does call 
uh, in, in this absolute obedience. And there is sometimes a time where you have to choose between both of them. Um, but that is not the norm in terms of our everyday life, um, especially in this country, for crying out loud. We can we have the luxury of being able to take care of our families and love our families and still serve God in his local church and ministry. And maybe even on the mission field with the resources that are available today. Um, it's not necessarily like it was maybe 150 years ago where it was much more difficult to send people out um, on the mission field. Um, so it. It's a it's a good thing to keep in mind as as, uh, you know, these life decisions are being made and, and these principles are being discussed. Um, but, you know, as we start to get into kind of the negative side of uh, Joel's principles, I'll talk a little bit later about uh, the principle of loving your neighbor, because that's really the crux of this book. I mean, it says right on the front, you know, why leaving godless places is loving godless places. So loving your neighbor is is really the you know, the crux of his book here. So understanding what does that look like biblically and is his understanding and application of the principle of loving your neighbor um, really what the scriptures are telling us to do. So I want to explore that uh, later on in this episode um, as we go down the road here. Another thing I'll point out real quick, kind of on, just on a practical matter of the book, and he even admitted this. Uh, there's a Another video that he did on his channel, Why Are Christians Divided Over Leaving Blue States? Um, and he talks about how he's not, uh, he even says, quote, that writing's not, that's not my strong suit. He even admits that. Um, and it shows in here, um, there are at least two chapters that don't really have, don't seem to have anything to do with the topic of the book. It seems it's not a very focused book. It's not very fleshed out in terms of its arguments. Um, it, in presenting why I should leave a godless place um, or why it would be a good idea to leave a godless place. So I think just from a practical standpoint, it doesn't prove the point. There's not enough there to to bear the weight of proving why I should do that. Um, and that's an aside from the arguments themselves. But I think it's important to point that out because it it will bear weight, I think, in terms of of, uh, you know, how we deal with his arguments and and the weight that is put on these arguments. But. Yeah, 100%. Which, you know, one sense I'm a little bit grateful for that it's not that fleshed out, because again, as we'll kind of get into, you only have the right to say so much on a topic like this, uh, mm -hmm. which will be my next section. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't think that uh, the, he really weighs his arguments against the arguments that could be pitted against him very mm -hmm. much. It's, it's more just an assertion that this is the loving thing to do and yeah there might be exceptions but it doesn't even really in the book explain why that why there would be that many exceptions to it but there's not a lot uh, of exegesis yeah and, there, and and that's that's another thing too yeah. um but anyways I, i'm sure we'll we'll cover a lot of that ground as we go through um yep. but one of the next things i wanted to talk about here is uh and this will be kind of a more broad section here not specifically aimed at the book so much but just kind of laying the the groundwork for things to consider about uh when when we approach topics like this and i think hopefully will be helpful outside of just this uh discussion and that's the concept of uh biblical jurisdiction and also liberty of conscience and I think one of the downsides of the speed of information that we have today is that we've lost a lot of the distinction between what's local news and what's global news. 
it all gets to everybody everywhere as if it happened in their own backyard. So there's not much of a distinction about it. And everyone everywhere feels that they're obligated to say something about it. We become global citizens as if we had a personal stake in all that happened on the planet. And actually, because of the spread of information and the spread of ideas and the real consequences that ideas have, there actually are times where de facto it does become everyone's concerned, and we all do have a, a, a stake in it. Bad teaching, for example, that gets on the internet can begin infecting your own local congregation with a single click of the button, and it needs to be warned against. If it's spread publicly, it needs to be warned publicly against. But other times, uh, things that are truly local issues uh, involving people in circumstances that we don't know that much about and really have no business in, uh, it quickly becomes part of the global discourse. And people feel that they not only have a right to weigh in on those matters uh, that they don't know much about, but they even feel a certain sense of pressure to do so, lest their silence be interpreted as a uh, implicit support for the wrong guy. And they too become targets of the global mob. I mean, how many times have we seen that over the last number of years when you have a social controversy, a political controversy or everything, everybody has to get on the bandwagon on Twitter, on Facebook, everything else. And if you don't, why isn't he joining us? Is he supporting the wrong guy here? So I, I think that's one of the bad consequences we have about the rapid spread of silence spread is of consent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it, it's one of the, the consequences of the uh, quick spread of information, I think. Yeah. But nevertheless, the Bible does not permit us to follow the multitude to do evil. Mm -hmm. It gives us a certain jurisdiction, and it doesn't give us more than that. There are certain things we have liberty to do anywhere and everywhere. We have a public or private hearing, such as sharing the gospel or articulating and defending the faith against gainsayers, such as we see Apollos do in Acts 18, just for an example there. It appears you're still a new convert and a layman, but he was nevertheless publicly disputing with the, the Jews. He was in the, the public squares countering bad ideas with, with good ideas from Scripture, showing that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, doing that in the midst of a controversy, defending uh, the good and biblical principles, is a good thing that Christians have liberty to do according to their ability, whether they're laymen or pastors. And that's what I view us as doing here on the podcast. Uh, but there are other things that we don't have the jurisdiction to do. There are some things that are so purely a matter of liberty and conscience that no one besides the individual has a right to weigh in on what they're doing, such as the matters discussed in Romans chapter 14. In such cases, you're left to stand or fall before God in your decisions. But there are other cases where an external word is appropriate, but still it's not necessarily appropriate for everybody to give it. Uh, and these situations may even involve some of the uh, principles that are discussed in Joel's book and their application of it. There might indeed be a case where there's a brother in your congregation who's neglecting his duty to provide for his family. And as his brother and as someone who knows the situation quite well, you're not an outsider with only partial information. You see a consistent pattern of indifference to his family. And now to be clear, this isn't because you're allowed to now come up with your own personal standard of what it looks like to, to, to faithfully fulfill your, your duties that the Bible doesn't give if he's in your congregation. I'm not saying that it, either. It, this isn't the case of someone uh, demonstrating a desire to love his family, to provide for his family. But uh, you think if he really loved his family, he would do X, Y, Z things that the scriptures never command. That's not the case. This isn't, just, this isn't the case of somebody trying to provide for his family and not doing it right, but 
uh, or not doing it how you think he should do it, but just someone who who's showing a pattern of not caring to do it altogether. And an external word is appropriate in those cases, but in these cases, it's not the business of everybody to give it. There's a process laid out in Matthew 18. It's his brother who approaches him. Uh, in the context, clearly shows it's a brother in his own congregation because the escalation process is ultimately to include another member of that congregation into it and then to present it through for the whole lo local congregation if it comes to that, if he doesn't repent. So it's clearly a congregational context here. And the ready witnesses uh, at the trial are indeed ready witnesses. They're not bystanders. Uh, so if you live across the country, it's not really your business usually to decide if the man has abandoned his duties or not. And if you have an opinion, it's not your business to publicly weigh in on a private matter, least of all to provide them with your own uh, personal standards of what being faithful in that context looks like, as if the saints there don't have enough sense to determine the right outcome uh, without you. Trust me, if, if your take was so vital for the right outcome of that case, uh, and it pleased God to use you for that end, he was perfectly able to put you in a place where you did have a lawful mm -hmm. say in the matter. Yep. Don't want to undermine the sovereignty of God in, in um, uh, ordering the affairs of our life and where he's given us a voice and where he hasn't. Uh, take a look at the Apostle Paul, for, for example. I think this is a, this makes the matter very clear. Even as an apostle, we see that when he was speaking uh, of his authority to the Corinthians, which he did a lot. I mean, he even judged in the case of church discipline. Uh, he points out that God and his providence had dealt him a measure out unto them. And he's implying in that that that's the grounds for him speaking the way that he does to them. And he wouldn't do it otherwise. I'm going to quote for the, from the NKJV here. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 13 through 14. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. We, we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. We're not overextending ourselves, he's saying, because we're we're the ones who planted your church in the first place. I'm the one of the apostolic foundations for your church. God has given me a sphere of authority that extends out to you. Um, he implies that even as an apostle whom the Spirit of God is speaking through, he wouldn't have even gone as far as he did were that not the case. Did he not give him that ministerial jurisdiction over the Corinthians in his providence? And we see a great contrast between how he talks to the Corinthians and to a church that he didn't do that for, that he didn't uh, build up initially, like the Church of Rome. Paul does give them some practical principles to consider in Romans 14 in light of an evident local controversy they had. But he does not weigh in on the outcome of specific cases like he does with the Corinthians. And yet even here, even here where he's not doing as much as he did to the Corinthians, he's just giving them the principles to help them with their local uh, controversy. He still emphasizes that he's only comfortable going that far because of his status as the apostle to the Gentiles. It's Romans 15, 14 through 16. And I myself am also persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. 
Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort, as putting you in mind, because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be a minister, the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. Like I said, uh, in this case, his boldness is not at all of the same sort that we see in the Corinthian epistles, where God had measured a ministerial line out to him. Yet he tells us that uh, he is giving this advice to the church at Rome, advice which consists only of giving them practical principles to consider, only because of his office. He wouldn't have even gone this far and, and, and said, well, it's my business to weigh in on this at all. If it wasn't for that, he, he wouldn't have felt it was his business, and he would have left it up to themselves, trusting that they are, as he says, full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. They wouldn't need his help, and in the strictest sense, he implies that they didn't truly even need his help then, but it appears he felt a certain sense of obligation to offer what he could on account of the office that was given to him, and the Spirit has inspired and preserved his words for our own example and edification. But again, if even the Apostle Paul was careful to assert that his authority was unique and limited in speaking to those churches, and he wouldn't have been so bold uh, as to even address the congregation of Rome with the principles that he does uh, in that situation if he wasn't the apostle to the Gentiles, how much more should we be careful about offering practical advice to churches we've been given no office to speak in? How much more should we be careful about the limits of our own authority to address Christians and churches across the country and tell them that they might want to consider leaving the place God's providence has currently put them in, as if that was any of our business to do, as if we're kind of a pastor over them. He doesn't give us that kind of authority, and we need to be very careful in how we address brothers and congregations that we have nothing to do with, who are perfectly able of resolving it themselves. You know, it, that's interesting. Um, even that that's a good word, even for us doing a podcast, right? Mm. It's very easy in a platform. And Joel has a podcast, too, and he has kind of his own platform. It's very easy, I think, to to be pointing fingers at other people and step outside the bounds of what God has prescribed for the authority of Christians and their consciences in the church. It's easy to do in a platform like this. Oh, absolutely. Because you have a voice. There's people listening to you. And it, and like you said before, the information travels so quickly. So yeah. it, it's very easy to overstep those bounds um, if you're not careful, even maybe subconsciously, too. You just start doing it. But we, it's something you have to keep in mind all the time that we don't have um, ministerial authority over other people in the in other churches. We just don't. Um, we can comment on on issues like we are now. There are places to do that, but it's so easy to do and and not letting other elders do their job and yeah. trying to take that yeah. job from them. Even it's it's so easy to do. It's something to remember. That's a very good point. Yeah, yeah, it's something we definitely have to be humble on because, like you said, it's easy to slip in. I, I definitely yep. won't say that I've never slipped in it, or I, I'm sure if somebody went through everything I've said, they could find instances where I probably went too far. Um, but but it's 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 but it is an important thing to keep in mind. And like I said, uh, there is a difference between in the public square addressing ideas of the public square and even right. naming names in the process. We see scriptures yep. doing that. Uh, it's but it's different from talking about the ideas and teachings of scriptures generically when people are challenging them 
right? So you're defending them in light of a controversy versus mm -hmm. saying, uh, therefore, you and your congregation, here's what you need to do in this right. situation. That's a very different matter. And yes. that's something that we online have no authority to do for anything. Exactly. But we see people doing that kind of stuff all the time. It's, oh, it's absolutely. It's like, There's a whole market for that. There's a whole It is, yeah. And I, I truly think like it, it's – I don't want to say it's exclusively an American problem. But I think that's overstating it. But I, I think we as Americans do have that tendency to, to just think we have a right to, to speak our mind at any point regardless first of, amendment. of the consequence of it. We have the First Amendment. So therefore, we can act like a pastor for not a pastor. Right. No, 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 no. God's, God's law overtrumps the uh, First Amendment. Amen. You might have the civil freedom to do it, but that doesn't mean you have the moral freedom to do right. it. Those are very different things. All right. So you have anything more to say? To mm -mm. That? Nope. All right. Yeah. So, so move on to the, to the next section then, um, which is actually one of the sections I'll have to kind of adjust the most on the fly here. <laughs> uh, and that's dealing with the kind of two postures that we have. Is Joel just defending people who, who want to leave or is he encouraging people to, to leave? Um, and that's one of the troubles when dealing with this issue is because those two perspectives exist. And uh, it used to be stronger, but again, one of the, I think, most airing uh, examples of that has been removed, thankfully. Uh, and that was the sermon clip. I think that showed mm -hmm. that that him doing it the wrong way, the, the most strongest. Uh, but anyways, I, I do want to be clear up front that I'm not accusing him of being intentionally double tongued or deceitful. Mm -hmm. I don't have any, I don't have any reason to do that, nor to be my place to tell you what's going on in his heart. And on the contrary, I do think it's it's it can be easy if you're discussing a particular application you make of a biblical principle that's very near and dear to your own heart and something that you've actually had to do at some point. It can be pretty easy to to get too enthusiastic about it mm -hmm. and speak with more authority and vigor than you acknowledge that you should in your calmer and better moments. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not here to judge him on that or, or to say that's, that's not something that I'm equally capable of doing, but whatever the case might be, the fact remains that these two perspectives are there in his book and other things he's put out there. And if we're going to clear up the issue, we have to address it. Uh, so to get a little into the history, and here again, here's where it starts to uh, become an <laughs> issue where my notes don't match what I can say now. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just going to show you a, a clip from, from AD to show you the better uh, perspective that he gives. And I will contrast that with some things that appear uh, from his, his book. So this will be slightly long, but I, I think it is good in, in showing you the, the one voice that he gives. The book is basically, in a nutshell, it's just trying to assuage the consciences of Christians that live in difficult places as the culture war is heating up, as there are um, certain policies at the political level and certain um, just cultural environments that are becoming more hostile towards Christians. The whole purpose of the book is to say uh, that some of you may be called to stay. If so, you must stay faithfully. So you can't be, um, the Lord desires obedience, not sacrifice. So you cannot be um, committed to missional sacrifice at the cost of practical biblical obedience to the commands mm -hmm. to fathers and husbands with a family. But if you can do those things faithfully, some of you will stay. For those of you who would like to leave and feel as though you should uh, maybe practically have to leave, um, there's a chance your pastor, not in every sense, but in every case, but there's a chance that your pastor 
might be strongly, maybe not commanding, but strongly persuading you to stay and mm -hmm. even using words like it's compromise to leave or you're doing violence to Jesus if you leave mm -hmm. or it's a doctrine of demons to leave. And Christians in those environments that feel like we can't care for our family here, uh, but our pastor is basically making us feel as though we're in sin if we go. I wanted to assuage their consciences because I know what that's like to be on both ends. I know what it's like to give the bad counsel that wrongly binds the conscience. When I was a pastor in a blue context, and I know what it's like um, to be the individual Christian man who feels like he needs to make a decision for his family, mm -hmm. and I'm getting guilt tripped. <clears throat> Joel, I got to be honest with you when I when I. And thank you for that, because uh, th that's a good summary of the book. You're not commanding people to leave. I've heard people say that you're trying to command people to leave. And I, I knew that you wouldn't do that. That's that's crazy. Um, but no, I do want to point out just in passing that AD at the beginning said he hadn't read the book. So this is this is he's just going off of what Joel's summary of the book. Uh, and is it, yeah, it shows, unfortunately. Yeah. Oops, about. <clears throat> it 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 kind of was weird to me that it would even need to be written at all. I, when I, I you know you might not know this right. about me, Joel, but I used to live in New York City, and I really I really love a lot about New York City, um, very much. And I I was there as an unbeliever, you know, doing whatever I wanted to do. I was there as a believer trying to do the right thing, you know, trying to obey Christ. And I you know me and my wife decided that we would uh, not raise our children there um, for a variety of reasons. And so we just made plans to to move and we did. And like, I didn't even know that that was a thing that I had to run by my pastor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, like I didn't, it just made no sense to me. So, so Joel, I mean, is, is this something that you've heard from people that their people are actually being guilt tripped for trying to, you know, raise their family in the context that they want to raise their family in? Definitely. Yeah. How, 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 how does that work? I mean, I think one of the things that I wanted to, um, talk about because that to me seems like a tremendously over overstepping the bounds of what an elder is supposed to be doing for you joel so yeah. like d does d in your opinion does a pastor have anywhere close to that authority over what you do with your family not even close so <laughs> the problem is um the problem is that we learned three years ago that there's such a thing as civil tyranny Mm -hmm. uh, what we have not learned yet is that there is very much such a thing as ecclesiastical tyranny as well. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons why some pastors, not all, but some of the pastors. Uh, yeah, that's the the full clip that I wanted to play there. Uh, so so to get back to it, uh, I, I agree with so much of what he said in that video. If that truly was just how the the book was, then I'd be I'd be all for it. I really I really would. Um the, the problem is, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to get all my my screens back up here. Uh, that's right, now I got things on on uh, two uh, browsers there. That's a long story. Uh, <laughs> anyways, yeah, Dan knows what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, but anyways, um, uh, unfortunately, what the things that he say, says there don't really mesh that well with many of the things in the book. Like you get the impression from that that all he's trying to do is assuage the conscience of, of people who want to leave, but their pastors are saying they have to stay. They have some obligation. And, and he says that pastors don't even have close to the authority to, uh, to you know, guilt trip people about their uh, 
their moving decisions about wanting to raise their families in the context they want to raise them but again you just don't see that in uh the book and i mean even even look at the the title of the book itself and i know it's it's supposed to be snazzy right but i mean things can be snazzy but you want them to actually reflect what's being presented the book isn't titled uh fighting by flying or can i fight by flight or anything like that it's fight by flight that's an imperative and the subtitle is why leaving godless places is loving godless places mm-hmm. and last i checked loving is not optional for the christian right. so it's if it's command. the loving yeah <laughs> if it's the loving thing to do you'd think we have to do that right is that not encouraging somebody to leave uh what he would consider to be a godless place I mean, first of all, I'd reject that paradigm that like, oh, Texas is a godly place, but California is an ungodly place. Maybe <laughs> it's better. Maybe it's better. I'm not going to dispute it. it. Might not be better, but but yeah, it's it's. I mean, they're babies all are still killed in Texas too. So. Yeah, yeah, they're all <laughs> under the prince of the power of the air. Uh, right. Ultimately, um, but but then um, you, you you know, I was almost wondering after I saw that because that was pretty recent. That clip there, if is is he kind of you know changing his perspective on it but but th- that kind of tension between the two views is has been there from the very beginning you, you see the same kind of perspective in the the very introduction of the of the book there uh, um it, he says on page nine of the introduction um in short since i spent several years of my life compelling christians to stay in california it seems only right to devote some time and energy to righting my past wrongs this is not some kind of gospel-less penance. Rather, the scripture teaches that each of us should strive to do good works in keeping with our repentance. That said, I recognize that I must be careful not to make the same mistake, only this time in the other direction. Therefore, my desire is for Christians to seriously consider whether or not their choice to remain in hostile context will inhibit them from full obedience to all of Christ's commands. I want these Christians to know that it is permissible and in some cases even commendable to leave. At the same time, I want Christians to know that there are exceptions to the rule. In some cases, it is permissible and even right to stay. To this end, this small book is intended to serve as merely the kindling of for the fire of serious thought, prayer, and discussion. Ultimately, the decision is up to you, your conscience, and the Lord. So we see much the same thing we just heard in the clip there. So it's not trying to bind people. This is ultimately up to your own conscience. Uh, and it's it's more just kind of liberating the mind to say, oh, you, you can leave, and sometimes it's commendable to to leave and if that's how the rest of the book was i'd have very little negative to say about that right to me that's fighting fire with fire in the public square in accordance with you know what we said that is goes beyond that and starts let's flesh out the applications of that or what i think the applications of that should be i mean chapter three the title of it is the exception is not the norm you know so if if this is to be something that is to be up to my conscience that might be the norm for a lot of people, because maybe they can live in California and live comfortably and provide for their families and be in a good local church and serve the community right while living in a hostile environment. And that might be most Christians. That might be the norm. But that's yeah. not the picture we're presented here. Is that the exception, which is staying in his mind, is not the norm, which should be leaving those places. Yeah. But yeah, for sure. And, and, he says, way. <laughs> and he says quite bluntly, like um, this, this is from uh, page 
uh, 43, he, he, he's discussing, he, he's, he's interpreting the uh, parable of the prodigal son. And I'm not going to get into the exegesis on that. I don't it's think bad. it's very good. <laughs> um, I don't know, Dan, if you had a section on that or not, but I, I, I do. Yeah. Um, okay. A little later on down the road, but I, yeah, I'm going to talk about that a little bit. All right. Sounds good. Uh, but, but anyways, uh, you, I'm just going to read this part here so you get a, get a sense of, of what he's saying. One of the worst things that could be could have occurred for this rebellious young man would have been if a member of his father's household had tracked him down and given him a handout. Only when the prodigal experienced the consequences of his choice did he decide to make a change. And, and here it is. So although some Christians may be called to stay, the vast majority of Christians need to stop propping up godless states at the expense of their own families. Mm -hmm. We need to stop supplying handouts to the prodigal son. Let's allow this rebellious teenager to eat a little pig food for a while. Perhaps God will grant the gift of repentance and permit <laughs> places like California to come to their senses. So does that sound like someone who's just trying to assuage the conscience of people who want to leave? <laughs> like he's saying, no, the vast majority of Californians ultimately need to leave because we need to dry, uh, dry the state. Uh, we need to bleed the state dry, essentially, and make them suffer the consequences, which goes to, to actually his other argument, which, which I'll talk about more later. But that that's that's not him doing what he was saying in the ad clip of saying oh you know it's it's not the pastor's business about where you live where you're comfortable raising your home he he seems to be saying no it 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 is and the vast majority of you need to leave in fact he says that he did that for his own congregation uh it, it's something he boasts about doing actually you can find it on page 15 of his book i won't read the whole section but um the same Joel that implied that it's none of your pastor's business uh, about about where you want to leave. Uh, he tells us in page 15 that he believes it's a pastor's duty to lead his sheep to greener pasture, which to him included encouraging them to move with him to Texas. Yeah, he took uh, an entourage with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and again, dealing with exegesis, I don't think that's a good exegesis of Psalm 23. But uh, and it's certainly we don't see the apostles following that exegesis if it was proper but uh but again he boasts of being able to of, of that he was able to per persuade many of his congregation to to join with him in that that page so if you can reconcile that with his statements about ecclesiastical jurisdiction i, I frankly can't he he says in one place that's not the that's not the pastor's duty you don't have to run that by your pastor but then from the pulpit he says no i was in well, I don't know if he specifically says pulpit, but in his pastoral capacities, he said that, no, he was encouraging people to do exactly that and, and, and tell them where to move. So, again, that's not just a defensive posture. That's an active encouraging mm -hmm. you guys need to move kind of thing. All right. So um, having said that, if, if you don't have any comments on that, Dan. Um, nope. Go right ahead. I, my next section is, is uh, about the imposition of personal standards in the places of principles. And this is kind of where the, the rubber meets the road for, for this portion of the book and, and, and why at least one of the reasons why he thinks he can say the things that, that he says, um, you know, we've already mentioned that there are important biblical principles about providing for your own that Joel rightly brings up in his book as something we have to take seriously. If you prayerfully and soberly consider these things and decide that you can't fulfill them in your current place, but that you can elsewhere, certainly no one should fault you for leaving. 
But while the Bible gives us the principles for this, God did not see fit to give us a specific standard for what that looks like in practice to fulfill them perfectly, besides denouncing those who don't feel need to do it at all. So, you know, there are very obvious examples of men who just simply don't care, but he doesn't give you the specific examples of, well, here's the positive, here's how it actually looks to a T. Uh, he doesn't give a minimum threshold as if your family needs to live at this level of wealth or that you should dedicate this percentage of your your time to work to meet their physical needs, another percentage of your time to meet their spiritual needs, etc. He doesn't do any of that. And really, we shouldn't need one, partly because there probably isn't a cookie cutter standard that's mm -hmm. apl applicable to all situations. And also because it's the characteristic of those, I would say, who are still under tutors and governors to need that kind of detailed regulation instruction over us. The message of the New Testament to the covenant people is that we live after the law of liberty. You're not, uh, you don't, you're not given a detailed regulation about every aspect of your life. God has written his law on your heart. Paul tells us that we've been given the spirit and so tells us to walk by it. And that's mm -hmm. how you fulfill the law of love. And if the deceitfulness of her flesh makes it sometimes necessary to be reminded what love looks like, uh, besides some practical examples, uh, we're also and we're principally pointed to the Ten Commandments, the, the sum of which is to love the Lord our God, through our might and all our strength and our neighbor as ourselves. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets, Matthew seven twelve. If God didn't feel the need to get more specific on a given matter, rest assured he doesn't need us to do it for him. If an additional external voice is ever needed because a brother is straying from the very principles themselves, God has already instituted the means of practically enforcing those principles, and that's the local church. And let us never imply that the institutions that he's put up are insufficient to meet his own ends, as if God needs our wisdom in uh, doing that. But this is precisely where we run into issues in the book. If God hasn't given us a specific threshold we must meet in order to say we've sufficiently provided for our families from a financial perspective, which is the perspective Joel mostly focuses on that point of, uh, at that portion of the book, or the fruits of not having enough financial resources, you could say, then how could we say with him that the vast majority of Christians in California can't meet that threshold? Is the standard give... Is the standard scripture gives us that if you can simply make more money elsewhere, you're obligated to move there? If I make, for example, 120K in California, but I can make 125K in Texas, would I be obligated to move there? Certainly not. And, and that's something that Joel himself certainly wouldn't argue for either. He, he even says, for example, that if there's, a faithful, if there's not a faithful church where you want to move, that's a very important debarred factor. So it's not that's not the only factor, the financial considerations. There are other factors to consider. Uh, there, there's uh, spiritual, familial, family, family ties you might have there, friendships, and, and many others. And we're not told to maximize one factor at the expense of all the rest. So in order to say that we're at the point where the vast majority of Christians need to leave California, then you can't simply say that, oh, if you can make money, more money elsewhere, you're obligated to move. You have to actually say that they're not even main, make, meeting the minimal threshold for their duties such that it's not even for most of them worth weighing the other factors in it because they're not meeting their minimum responsibilities. Uh, and, and that is kind of the sense that you get. But, but as in the book, 
But as we've said, God hasn't given us that minimal threshold uh, as to where financial considerations now outweigh all other advantage we might have in fulfilling our duties to God and man where we are, which means in order for Joel to make his case, he needs to come up with his own standard, weigh the majority of California Christians in the balance and find them wanting, which is exactly what he does, I think. He, he talks about cases where both parents need to work full time, where they don't have quite as many kids as they might have elsewhere, where they send their kids to a public school, where they don't have as much generational wealth uh, as they might somewhere else. All of which, by the way, is perfectly good and worthy for Christians to consider. Mm -hmm. But are these really marks of not even meeting the minimum duty to our family? And by what standard are they? Such that we can say that the majority of Christians ought to leave regardless of other very common costs that are associated with something like that kind of drastic move. It's not a small thing to to root up your family and move elsewhere. Ties of people, place, and affection can be very strong. There's a certain amount of influence and reciprocity you might have gained over the years with friends, coworkers, fellow believers, and your local church that might be significantly diminished from a cross-country move, and it might take years to build that back up in your new home. Many might simply feel called by providence to minister to the specific people in the specific place that they're in. So do the issues that Joel raised so outweigh other considerations that the majority, the vast majority of California Christians ought to disregard those other costs and others that, that could be raised as well? I'm not saying I'm giving you an exhaustive list. In fact, I'm not even saying that they shouldn't for most of them necessarily. It's not my business to say mm -hmm. whether whether it should or, or not. Maybe if the majority considered all the pros and cons, they'd actually agree with Joel and say, yeah, maybe we should leave. But what I am saying is that, again, it's not our business to prop up our own standards if the scriptures haven't given them and saying, hey, you guys don't meet this threshold. You should we shouldn't you should leave and I need to encourage you to leave. Um, it's not our business to weigh those pros and cons and we should be content with the principles that God provides and work out the application in our own lives and our own local churches as appropriate. Yep. All of those things have to be balanced and, and, and they kind of look different depending on who you talk to and where you are. You know, one might have greater weight than the other, depending on where you are, but Again, that's we have the principles in Scripture, and the application is up to you, based on your, you know, your judgment that is informed by the Scriptures and the Spirit's illumination uh, of His Word. Um, so we, you just have to balance those things out. I mean, what tedious work it must be to track people down and be <laughs> picking them apart like this all the time. You know, like why are you? Oh, you're not moving to this place? Oh, we gotta oh, we gotta bring in the elders. We gotta have this big conversation. I mean, what a distraction that is from the work of a minister to have to do that stuff like that. It's ridiculous. I'd say it's one of the beauties of the new covenant is that we can leave it up to people's judgment yes. most of the time. Obviously, there are those cases of church discipline, but right. for most of the time, we can because, like we've said, the law of God has been written on our hearts. Yep. The Spirit indwells us, and he teaches us through his word how to walk by it. We're not like the unbelievers who who completely distort love to be something completely different than what it does in Scripture. Now, we can. I'm not saying we don't have the flesh. But as a general rule, uh, the Spirit leads his people. And if they start to stray for a season, he'll correct them. Or if he needs to do that through his local church, he'll do that as well. 
Um, so it, it is actually a good and safe thing that we uh, to, to leave it up to the individual believer in the era we live in. And that's one of the glories of it. Yeah, we, we tend to make the Christian life so overly complicated by adding all these extra rules and lists that we have to follow um, that really are not in Scripture. It, it's freeing with the gospel, the new, like you said, the new covenant. It frees us not to do what we want sinfully, but to live a life as God has commanded us to, but have the liberty within those principles to be able to make those judgments without people coming at you and saying you should do X, Y, and Z. Um, it, it really is freeing in that way. But we, we do tend, unfortunately, to want to control other people in that way or even control ourselves, imposing uh, our consciences really, you know, where we shouldn't be doing that. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about kind of shifting gears for a little bit. Um, talk, what does it mean to love your neighbor? So Joel, this, like we mentioned before, this is really the principle of his book, Why Leaving Godless uh, Places is Loving Godless Places. So loving your neighbor is is a crux of the book. It is one of the major themes and what he tries to argue in this book, at least to some extent. Um, so Andrew read a little bit of this earlier from pages 42, 43. I'll read some of the last section here. Um, this is from page 43. So although some Christians may be called to stay, the vast majority of Christians need to stop propping up godless states at the expense of their own families. We need to stop uh, supplying handouts to the prodigal uh, to the prodigal son. Let's allow the rebellious teenager to eat a little pig food for a while. Perhaps God will grant the gift of repentance and permit places like California to come to their senses. Um, so he, there's some problems here with the application of the prodigal son. He reads some of the story. He actually reads only a small section of it uh, from Luke chapter 15. But I, as with some of the other exegesis that we see in this book, um, there is straining out a gnat where there doesn't need to be. I mean, just taking a passage and trying to make it fit uh, where it doesn't need to fit. I think personally, when we're talking about uh, this story, his application of it, you know, he suggests that it would have uh, not been good for someone at his father's home, the prodigal son's father's home, to track him down and give him a handout. And I don't know how you could get that from the passage because the passage says that his father implies at least strongly that his father was looking for him. He was waiting for him when he came back. He could, the son came back on the road. He saw him and he ran to him. He was looking for him. So who knows what this father would have done? I think he's, he's really straining to make this passage work for his, uh, his particular position. As we do see in verse 20, the father saw his son a long way off. So he was he was keeping an out for him, looking for him. He wasn't uh, abandoning him just because he left uh, his home. He loved his son and wanted him uh, to come back. So who knows? But when we're talking about, you know, loving our neighbors, what does that mean, biblically speaking? Um, and I think that's important to define because what Joel seems to do, to me at least, is to arbitrarily apply this principle of what he thinks loving your neighbor is uh, to what it means to stay or to leave in a blue state. So he tries to make the argument in the book, um, especially as it relates to voting. Actually, in the, on, the, on page 43, the heading is, it's not only how you vote, but where you vote. And he basically talks about how it, the strategic position of voting in a place where you're going to make positive changes for your neighbor is better, and that is a principle that should guide you as you're looking to stay or leave in a blue state. Um, so I think that he's applying an arbitrary standard of loving your neighbor 
um, as it relates to how we should uh, adjust or not adjust our living situation. So let's see what the scriptures say about what it means to love your neighbor. So I'm going to look at uh, Romans 13, 8 through 10, because um, Paul lays out, very, I think, very clearly. He, he doesn't just say, you know, love your neighbor. He gives really where that's rooted in. What is that principle rooted in? It's rooted in the Ten Commandments and God's law. That gives us the framework for how we love our neighbor. So Romans 13, 8 through 10, it says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So you notice here that Paul is listing out the second table of the law, maybe not all of them, but you know, a good chunk of them saying, this is what it means to love your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, you are doing what the law is commanding you to do. You are living out uh, the principles that are found in God's Ten Commandments. So all of these these principles, not committing adultery, not stealing, not lying, not coveting your neighbor's goods, seeking your neighbor's uh, best good within those parameters, that is what it means to love your neighbor. It's not some arbitrary standard of love that we just say, well, this might better this person's status over here. So therefore, that means that you should do this particular action, not necessarily, um, because we have that framework of what it means uh, to love your neighbor. And that's important to realize. We have a framework here. We don't just arbitrarily throw whatever we think um, love is. And I have a, kind of a, an interesting example here as it relates to you know, seeking our neighbor's best good. Are we, does seeking our neighbor's good mean that we seek his, uh, the most good that we can give that particular person? Um, or is it seeking their good within the confines of other biblical principles? And I'm going to argue the latter. Um, and I think a perfect example of this, when you look at an example of shopping at a place like Walmart versus Target, if I buy from Walmart, technically I'm hurting Target by not giving them uh, resources that they could use for their own good. They can't invest in their employees with that money. They can't invest in their buildings, buy more product. That money is going to Walmart to do that and not to Target. So in, in the strictest sense, I'm hurting Target by not paying them what they could have made. And it's less money I could have given them. But we would, nobody would argue, and I don't think Joel would argue that either, that taking something away from your neighbor in that regard is hating your neighbor or uh, hurting them in an illegitimate way because you're engaging in legitimate commerce. You're being, you're using equal weights and measures. You're uh, giving them what they are due for the product that you want. And that's all consistent with biblical principles. And Target does not have a right to my money um, because I'm the steward of that money and I can do it. I feel as best with it within biblical principles. And I shouldn't just be giving Target money because they demand that I pay for their products. Um, so again, these are these are all based on those frameworks that we have on what it means to love your neighbor. All these biblical principles coming together to tell us what that uh, looks like. So it, Joel seems to kind of carry this idea that loving your neighbor is merely doing uh, what helps them for the most good. And I think that kind of goes back to what you said earlier, Andrew, about um, salaries. If I could make 125000 a year in Texas, but I only make 120,000 in California. Uh, it's technically better for my family, maybe, 
if I go to Texas because I'm going to make more money. I might be able to pocket more of that money, invest in generational wealth and put more money into savings. Who knows? Um, but does that mean I have to leave because that is there? Um, and, and I don't think that you have to. I think that as long as you're following these biblical principles and you're loving your neighbor based on the framework that the scriptures give us, you can do that anywhere. Um, and, and as long as you're following these other you know, biblical principles, providing for your family, et cetera, which is, you know, I would argue a form of loving your neighbor. So all of these things have to be kept in mind as we're considering this. We don't just say we love our neighbor. Voting in a red state is going to help your neighbor. Therefore, that means you should leave. Um, that that's that's not going to convince any mature Christian. It, it's just not. And it's not a biblical argument either. Um, I could argue in the reverse. Why don't we all just move to California? All the Christians in the country move to California, overtake that state and overturn it by the votes that we could put there. Why is it only in leaving? I don't know. That's never discussed. Um, so I think that would be something uh, to consider as well. Wouldn't that be a form of loving your neighbor? Hmm. Yeah, I would think yeah. so. Yeah, I think the issue is like who gets to come up with the strategy. Exactly. Cuz like yeah, you can always standards. <laughs> you can always say like yeah, my strategy would result in the most good like in this good to this people, but it's like, well, if we do that strategy, we're not doing another strategy. Could that one do more? Who gets to judge? Who's the who becomes the pope of Christendom? Exactly. Decide which strategy we should all do. And what are the costs for the individuals? Right? Like how much does my political ballot in this state versus that state, uh, that state, like practically impact things, uh, and how does that contrast with the practical impact I might lose by leaving the church and people who I'm around, uh, and I'm currently ministering to, right? Like all these things have to be weighed together, and again, it will differ on circumstance, what you want to do and what's best for you and your family, but but that's why you just can't make it as simple as oh. Uh, Hey, if we all move to a red state, we might be able to win the next election. Therefore, that's what we should do. It's it's not anywhere close to as simple as that. Yep. We cannot apply arbitrary standards of what loving your neighbor means to anything. We the scriptures give us a very clear framework of what that looks like. And I mean, if you're gonna do that, then at the end of the day, you're going to look like the world. I mean, the world says that homosexuality is love. You know, and it's like we would go, no, 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 that's not love. But why do we do that? Because God has prescribed what love looks like, what loving your neighbor actually looks like. Um, so we have to do the same thing here. We, we have to define biblically what God's framework for loving your neighbor is and not work outside of that. And I think that's why we can take that framework and apply it wherever we live. You can live in a godless place and still love your neighbor. And just because you're, you know, maybe you're not living in a red state. Um, bettering the local redneck county over here because that might help everyone financially. Um, I can still fulfill the commands of loving my neighbor in California because those commands, um, that framework can be applied pretty much anywhere. I can still um, seek my neighbor's good in California. I can still um, respect their property. I can still respect their spouse. I can still um, you know, not steal from them and seek their good financially. I can do all of that even in a godless place. And I think there seems to be this false dichotomy created with regards to uh, what loving your neighbor means and living in God. It's either you love your neighbor and leave or you hate your neighbor and stay. That seems to be the implication that Joel gives in his book. Yeah. 
And in passing, we love redneck counties, by the way. <laughs> What'd you say? I said in passing, we love redneck counties. Oh, yes, yes, we do. We love redneck counties. That's not to if, take if a stab fact, at it. Those are my favorite places in the country. Yes. If someone called me a redneck, I'd consider just it Just an example. Just an Personally, example. no. <laughs> I'd consider it a compliment for me personally. But anyways, <laughs> I know I'm not. I live in Northern Virginia, but I wish I was. Anyways. <laughs> um... But to move on to the next section, um, the unbiblical uh, post. This actually is going right off of the t. The the the, the, the wow, man, I can't speak this morning. It's going right off of the the heels of, of what you were just saying, uh, Dan. As far as that political strategy part, um, and that's to me that's the other aspect that needs to be untangled because the pragmatic arguments, yeah, they were wrongly applied, but the principle was good. The principle of providing for your family, for example, that's a good principle to consider. Uh, but the theme of the book isn't just leaving really expensive cities in California, like San Diego and the like, which are kind of the target of, of that point of the book. And they wouldn't work nearly as well in other parts of California. It, it's not all one giant San Diego. It's not all that impossibly expensive to live in, even if right. maybe on average it's more expensive. Um, but his argument is leaving blue states, not just blue mm -hmm. cities. And in order to get that second aspect, you have to go uh, to his arguments that Dan was already starting to bring up about the uh, political arguments, your vote here versus your vote there and, and, and all that. Um, like I said, the other part's at least based in biblical principles, and the issue is, is his standards of applying those principles rather than the root argument. But she won't, frankly, find a hint of his political motivation for moving in Scripture. That's never applied by any of the apostles or put upon the churches. Now, if your conscience is pressed by paying taxes in the state you are, and you think you have an opportunity uh, to leave it, and you're pressed to live in a place where you think you could do more significant work for uh, for Christ in the kingdom, of course you have the liberty for acting upon mm -hmm. that, absolutely. But you don't have right to press other people to do the same thing and act like the Bible would demand it of someone, as if that's the loving thing to do. It's kind so, of similar to uh, uh, to Paul's principle with marriage. In First Corinthians seven, yeah, you would be better off being single, and you'd have more opportunity to serve the Lord. But I'm not going to impose something. This is me, not the Lord, telling you to do this. This is me giving you practical principles to consider um, as it relates to marriage. Um, but you know, if you're single, you don't have the distraction of a family. You're going to be able to serve the Lord better. So all the more for it. But I'm also not putting a command on you to do so. You need to work that out. So that principle is even there in things like marriage. With oh, yeah. Paul. Yeah, yeah, because there's other factors than just the right. time you can devote for, for spiritual things. And yep. we know that, really, for most people, the normal thing is to get to get married mm -hmm. and have kids. Um, even though, yeah, technically they might be able to devote more time to the Lord, yet that's not what most people are called to do. Most people yep. can't abide in singleness. Um, it's... The consequences are too much for that, uh, for most people. Uh, but anyways, um, yeah, so Joel's argument uh, is essentially in this place, which you already kind of laid out. It, it, it's it's that uh, Christians ought to move to what he calls a strategic place that's both yep. significant and winnable, uh, whatever winning really means. I don't think his idea of winning is necessarily the same as what the Bible would call winning. Um so don't live out in a small town in Kansas because it's not significant. 
uh, even if though it's winnable. But don't live in New York City because it's significant, but it's not winnable. That's the kind of argument. And 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 he didn't. He wasn't the first one to come up with that. He actually was getting that from uh, another one of the guys in that circle. Uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but that's the argument in a nutshell. But all it takes is a cursory look at the cities that the apostles planted churches in to see that they did nothing of the kind. And we certainly have no record of them ever encouraging the people they converted there to leave. Consider Corinth. If Corinth was around today, it would definitely fit the bill of a dark blue city. It had a gigantic population and was known for its immoral character, full of grotesque paganism, prostitution, you name it. R.C. Sproul even compared it to the Las Vegas of the ancient world. <laughs> it, was, it was by no means winnable by, by, by their standard, and, uh, I mean, and especially considering how small the church probably was. I've heard some estimates only about maybe 50 people there, mm. uh, and it's a city of about 500,000, so – yeah, you'd have a much better chance winning New York than you had to win Corinth over to Christ. And yet, Paul never encourages them to leave or to coalesce to a place where they're more likely to have an influence on the culture. Not there and not anywhere else. And and again, it's not I, – I know someone might object, well, you can vote today. It's a different political environment. But it's not just about voting if the idea is cultural takeover. It's actually about right. infecting the places of power, spreading through the cities. They could have done that, and yet he never tells them to, to do that or to think in that manner. In fact, it was to the church in Corinth that he wrote, let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Which, by the way, I don't think at all forbids moving. We do see some Christians move in the New Testament, uh, Quill and Priscilla, for example. Uh, but it certainly is not an encouragement to leave and find a place and position where you can have maximal influence on the culture. That's not a, a biblical uh, it, it encouraged idea. Uh, the the reason for the the reason for this is simple. While it's a wonderful thing if if the influence on of Christ in a land results in us being able to lead a more peaceful and quiet life, as Paul tells us to pray for the conversion of those in authority for that very end in First Timothy chapter two. I don't want to swing the pendulum the other end. It's a wonderful thing if people in authority convert, and Christ has indeed died for for some of them. He's died for people of all classes of men, as that passage tells us, and it's a good end, a peaceful, godly, quiet life. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it's not the ultimate goal of the Christian life. It's just the happy fruit that sometimes occurs as a result of our obedience and the spread of the gospel. But it doesn't inevitably result from our obedience, even if we do everything right. Paul, uh, in fact, sets our expectations straight. He tells us on the one hand, hey, it's good if people in authority convert. It's good for you. But he sets our expectations straight that it's not the norm. It's the exception uh in first corinthians chapter 1 26 through 27 we read for ye see your calling brethren how that not many wise men after the flesh not many mighty not many noble are called but god hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and god hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty god calls some among them uh but most of the time the people who actually have the most earthly power, uh, earthly cultural influence and the like, they're going to be against us. That's the, that's the normal situation. We praise God if we live in a case where it's not. And absolutely, if it's your calling to work to that end, more power to you. But expectation straight, this isn't going to be the norm, and we're not going to 
orient the whole Christian life to this end that the Bible doesn't give us any expectation will ultimately happen as if that was the duty of the church, as if that was the mission that Christ has given to the church. It's frankly, it's not. Our victory down here will be that despite all of that, despite all of that opposition that we have from the people who do have the most power and influence and the like, and not having all those things that the world thinks is so necessary for victory, is that Christ will use his people, even the weak, the foolish, the beggarly, and the despised, in the calling of each and every one of his elect out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of his own beloved son. And Christ will present his bride to himself, spotless and without blemish, conformed into his image on account of his putting their death to death at the cross. The rest assured, because some people call anything but their perspective loser theology. Now, we not only win down here, but we have won down here. Mm -hmm. and we don't look to the temporal. We don't look to the things that can be seen for the great and ultimate realization of it, of that victory. But we look to the new heavens and to the new earth that our Lord himself will bring down without any of our help. In the meantime, we are to be faithful in whatever the Lord's called us to and be content with whatever increase manifests itself from our labors in the here and now, whether big or small in the sight of men. Whether a nation starts on the whole following more the principles of Christ and we see greater prosperity to it, or whether the Christians there remain persecuted, downtrodden, but it's a victory because they are faithful in the midst of it. Yep. Keep your eye on, on fulfilling your duties that God's called you to, and don't let a man bind your conscience when God has left it free, and your reward will be great in heaven, will be much greater in heaven than anything you could have enjoyed here on earth. Yep, we're not building an earthly kingdom. Christ will establish his kingdom uh, in its culmination when he comes again, but the kingdom's here now. Uh, the kingdom of God is at hand, and it resides in the hearts of men, and we live uh, in light of you know the scriptures and how he's laid out his church uh, to proceed to glory, and that is kingdom life. <laughs> it's not transforming the culture in such a way that uh, we're going to uh, somehow establish an earthly kingdom uh, before Christ comes again, we live in light of a kingdom already here for us with uh, the, the kingdom of God reigning in our hearts as Christians. That's kingdom life. Amen. And that's unfortunately what's missed with um, brothers like Joe Webbin or a Doug or a guy like Doug Wilson or uh, James White. And those guys who focus so much on the earthly establishment of some kind of Christianized form of, of America or the world um, and missing the point of what the kingdom of God is really all about um, and living in light of that. Um, yep. And before we, we close out, I do want to talk about something we're, we're jumping all over the place. We're, you know, we're not, we're just hitting different, what we see different important parts. So, you know, some of these are going to be disjointed, um, but there is a particular passage of scripture that Joel has used and it's in the book uh at least part of it from matthew 10 um in the forward doug will doug wilson wrote the forward for the book by the way and he quotes uh matthew 10 23 or at least part of it um and i'll read it here it's from the kjv but when they persecute you in this city flee ye into another and that seems to be the probably the biggest passage of scripture that's guiding especially since it's in the forward it's Wilson is basically teeing up the book and saying, you know, here's kind of the principle 
the overarching principle that we're finding here. Um, so this is a, a key passage as it relates to understanding this. And I think yeah, in the quotes 80, it many times. Yeah. 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 And I think in the 80 Robles interview too, Joel actually talks about the dust shaking off the feet um, and things like that, which is also from Matthew 10. So we're going to take a look at that real quick. I think it's important to address. Um, we think it's, it's not a correct application of the passage, but it is a key passage that is used. Matthew 10 is a key part of scripture that's used to support the position of leaving in certain, uh, you know, leaving according to their standards. Um, so I just want to pull up, at least on my side here. Okay, Matthew 10. So he starts in, in 23, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to, I want to get into the context a little bit. So in the, in the first four verses, we see Jesus, um, he had called his 12 disciples and he's giving them power to do these things. He's giving them power over unclean spirits um, and to heal different kinds of sickness, etc. And he's getting ready to send them out. Okay, so this is kind of an initial form of evangelizing that Jesus is doing with his disciples. The gospel hasn't gone to all the world yet. It's this is Jesus locally spreading the gospel through his disciples. So if we look at verse, starting in verse five, uh, Jesus sends out the 12. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons freely. You have received freely give. Verse nine, provide neither gold nor silver, nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. And this is the passage that Joel uses. Uh, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And then Jesus starts to go into talking about what they're to expect as they're preaching. They're going to have persecution. They're going to have people speak against them and the spirit will be with them. And then you have verse 23, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So it's it's important, and I think it's telling that Wilson only quotes the first part of this verse, because the last part of this verse says what context Jesus is applying it to. So he's talking, and, and what we just saw uh, just a second ago in verses, uh, starting in verse 5, Jesus is sending out the disciples to go preach the kingdom of God or the gospel to the Israelites. The gospel has not gone out to the Gentiles yet, and we don't see that until Acts 2, at least in Mass. You do have some proselytes that Jesus will talk to here and there. Uh, we see that in the book of John. Um, but by and large, the gospel goes out to the nations in Acts chapter 2. We see this major shift. But Jesus is setting up the stage. The gospel was meant to go to Israel first and then to the nations. That is the specific context that we have here. Yet, now we have um, Joel and uh, Doug Wilson applying this passage specifically in a very broad sense, applying it to um, how you're to 
determine whether you leave a state or not. If you're persecuted in a blue state, well, there's your there's your ticket out. You know, read Matthew 10. Um, when that's, that has nothing to do with with this at all, it's very specific in an evangelistic effort to uh, bring the gospel to the Israelites. In prepping the this gospel to go to all the world, it's it's really the first step in in God's redemptive plan here. Um, but it has nothing to do with making a decision to leave a blue state or even where to live at all. It's just talking about evangelizing Israel and those practical uh, applications um, and, and what to do. Like, how were the disciples to react to different things? If someone was to come to them and persecute them, how are they to react? Well, if they don't receive your message, you know, don't throw pearls before swine, get out. You know, that that's essentially the principle there. But in the context as it relates to Israel, not in a broad sense. And we do see Paul doing this. Um, I think it's Acts chapter 13, uh, where he also shakes the dust off his feet as he's preaching it. But again, that was to the Jews. So he's he's abiding by the principles that Jesus has given here to the disciples. He doesn't see him um, as acting differently. And this isn't just taking the gospel to the Gentiles that's being forbidden. It's going among them. Jesus used a very specific language, and I'm going to read a little bit of John Gill here. He said, and this is about verse 5, Matthew 10. He says, meaning not the customs and manners of the heathens they were to avoid, but that they were not to steer their course or take their journey towards them. They were not as yet to go among them and preach the gospel to them, end quote. That's from John Gill's uh, Bible commentary from Matthew 10, 5. Um, so it it was to not even go among them, not just to not share the gospel with them. They weren't even to go among them. So if these guys are going to use this passage as a standard of where you're to go, you're going to have to leave the United States. You're going to have to basically we don't have these Jewish communities anymore. I mean, even if you go to Israel, there's so it, it's so intermingled now. Um, it's such an internationalized place. It's not just Jews. It's not an exclusive community anymore. Um, so it would be impossible to live like this. You can't just take pieces of this passage and apply them where you want while throwing out the rest that informs what that command is actually meant to be applied to. You can't do that. Um, and, and even in California, for instance, you've only got 3% of the population that's Jewish, um, according to the World Population Review. So, I mean, you're going to have all these different issues uh, applying this passage uh, if you try to apply it. Were you going to say something? Well, I was just going to say a big part of the passage, too, was the urgency of the time frame that they had. Exactly. Right? That's because it yep. says because you won't get through them before the Southern Man comes. Yes. Which, uh, probably, I mean, people debate what that's about. Probably either Pentecost or 70 AD. Um, I'd probably lean towards pentecost personally just because of uh i mean that's when he comes in the power of the spirit and they do go to the gentiles shortly after that but in any case like that standard's not applicable just in general christian life if the whole grounding behind it is hey the urgency of our immediate situation also they're not even living in those places that they're going to exactly. they were they were the traveling disciples right. travel to the next to the next city so it's it, to apply it uh to living situations is to to take it completely out of context and, now that's and not to say you that go to the red states too i mean you're going to have gentiles in red states you can't yeah can you not interact with them evangelistically there you can't you couldn't put up a church you couldn't do anything you'd have to you'd have to 
set up some kind of Jewish community off in the middle of nowhere and hope that works. It, it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I have no idea how you'd apply it in today's. Yeah, it, it's for sure. just it's um, just another example of the poor poor exegesis that you see, generally speaking, in this book. Um, yeah. and and from this position in general, it's it's taking these these little snippets of scripture squeezing out of them what isn't there as much as possible and then making that the standard um yeah. and it's really disappointing because joel is a pastor and he should really know better than that um especially someone in the reformed community um and claims to be a confessional pastor i mean i you would think that someone would uh not make these amateur mistakes i think they're amateur mistakes to be able to do that um Yes, we want to, you know, we're all in different places growing, and but it, it's just disappointing that uh, someone would, as a pastor in our circles, would um, go down that road and and squeeze passages like that and misapply them. Um, and it, it shouldn't be done. It's it's bad exegesis, and it's, it is disappointing. Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't think it's exegesis at all. No, and, yeah, it's and not the, exegesis. Yeah, <laughs> and, and no, no, I, I do do think we do see like in the case of um, the persecution in Jerusalem, that was a case where people did leave because of persecution. And I don't think that's totally unbiblical. But like, again, that was like violent to the death persecution where they were fleeing in that case. Right. So it's not not typical and that's certainly not what's being addressed in that passage so to no use that passage mm -hmm. in matthew 10 as a basis for it i think and we're not being I, think, I don't think you have anywhere near close to what they were yeah not <laughs> not the, not to the degree that the jews were when they had to no. leave jerusalem they were literally being hunting down in or the christians I should, the christian yeah, with, jews with uh, paul the christian jews. yeah, yeah they, they had down. to leave jerusalem because yeah, they're being killed and hunted bounty down. hunters you know going after them kind of thing yeah that was we don't have that and yeah. we got to stop comparing ourselves to the New Testament church in that regard. We we have it very, very easy here. <laughs> we, relatively speaking, it's very, very easy. Yeah. All right. Anything else to add, Andrew? Oh, I don't I don't have just I, I just reiterating the, the last piece of advice on that I gave for the last section. Just continue to be faithful in the calling that God's given you and um don't let a man bind your conscience where God has left it free. Yep. I think if we leave with that message, that's a good message to, to be left with. Yeah, absolutely. And we'd encourage you to read the book. Don't take our word for it. Go read it. It's on Amazon, Fight by Flight. You can find it. It's relatively cheap. Um, and investigate these things for yourself. And hopefully this has been helpful um, as you work through these issues. It seems with the theonomy guys, every once in a while, some curveball comes out because um, you know, they have the general principles of, you know, yeah, we need to you know, change the culture, redeem the culture, whatever you want to say. But then sometimes they'll have like these nuances like this, like, oh, should you leave this place in light of this principle or whatever the case might be? And you have to kind of deal with those individually on top of the whole system. Um, so uh, hopefully this has been helpful as we work through these, um, as maybe you're struggling with these or issues or whatever the case might be. Um, that this can be a helpful guide. Don't let a man bind your conscience where God has left him free um, and follow the principles uh, in Scripture, and we'll be fine. That That's really the Christian life. Yeah, and there'll um, be greater peace to the body of Christ. If yes, we do that. greater stop, less tension, yeah. less backbiting. Stop less trying to overstep our jurisdiction. Divisions. Yes, yeah. less bitterness if we just stick to those principles that Scripture gives us. Yep. Absolutely. Amen. Amen.
All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. This was a, a quote jumbo episode today, but um, that's what we got to do when we respond to these things and, and discuss these things. It requires a lot of discussion. So hopefully it's been helpful. Thanks for joining us and have a great Lord's Day tomorrow. Take care. God bless.